0: Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Really do appreciate you being here. Glad you are joining us. Hey, if you haven't already, you definitely want to stop by and check out MySpeakingAgent.com. MySpeakingAgent.com. Now, this is a free software tool that we have told you about recently. It's a brand new tool that we just introduced that helps you to identify, find, and contact potential gigs. It's totally free. It's an online software tool. Make sure you check that out. Again, it's over at MySpeakingAgent.com. Calm. Now today we're going to be talking with my buddy Vin Zhang. Vin is a uh, he's, he's a magician that has really transitioned into speaking and has done just killing it, just killing it. He's got a great Australian accent and then moved uh, over to the U.S. here recently and uh, just has some great insights and wisdom to share. We talk about the insane amount of behind-the-scenes work that Vin has done just to get to the level that he's at. Oftentimes I think we see speakers who are successful, that we admire, that we respect, and we think that that just happened, that they are some type of flat in the pan or overnight success. And that is certainly not the case with Vin. So he shares a little of his behind the scenes work of how he's got to the point where he's at. We talk about the TEDx talk that he gave that really changed the trajectory of his career. How he used that, how he he leveraged that into additional bookings. We talk about how he uses magic in his presentations without it being without him being labeled as a magician and why that's important. We also talk about why he places so much emphasis on his demo video. So a lot of great insights that he shares here. I think you're going to get a lot from this interview and from this conversation. Now I will give you a little quick heads up. There is a little bit of swearing in this episode. So if you uh, have little ones around, you might. Pop in the headphones, right? Just, just in case, there. All right. So, just a little uh, word of warning to you. All right. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with magician and speaker Bin Zhang. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Hey, today, hanging out with my buddy, Vin Jang, who is a uh, international speaker and a professional speaker who's been uh, at this for a while, is just really killing it lately. Keynote speaker, magician, and just all-around great guy. So excited to uh, hang out with Vin today. Vin, how are you, man?
1: Thanks, Grant. I was definitely spending a lot of time not killing it previously, <laughs> which led to me killing it gradually, but it was a damn long process of not killing it. <laughs> I
0: tell you, I think uh, I think oftentimes whenever we look at and not just like speakers but just entrepreneurs in general, we look at them and say, "Ah, oh, they're doing amazing," or they've got it all figured out. And that, I think that, that, correct me if I'm wrong, but the reality is we're all just making it up as we go. We're all doing our best not to look yes. stupid that day.
1: I love that you subscribe to that philosophy. Yeah. It's just so true. Not, it's just none so of us true. really know what we're doing. No one, no one does. Yeah. So I, I just love that because it's the truth and people who make it seem like they know exactly what's happening, not telling the truth. Right,
0: right. All right. Yeah. So let's. Uh, I'm interested to hear the snapshot of you. So you, you actually just relocated to the the US. You're from Australia. You yeah. got that sexy accent there. So the all speakers <laughs> crave and desire. So talk to us about how did your career get started in
1: Australia? And then uh, we'll kind of talk through the, the transition to the States here. By the way, the accent's not even real. I just put it on. That's well. <laughs> I started my speaking career in Australia and it was something I've wanted to do for a while. But being a magician and getting into speaking actually worked against me like crazy because people just thought, oh, you're a magician. It's cheesy. We don't want you. But fighting through that and believing in that, you know, when we speak on stage, it should also be entertaining, not just educational. Finally, it got through. So it took me about three years to build my career in Australia. And then I did a TED Talk. And I sent that TED talk to literally every single bureau I could in the US and say, look at me, there's a TED talk, but it was a TEDx talk. So I should clarify, it was TEDx. Yeah. And as a result, no one replied. And I just kept bugging all the bureaus until one person watched it and went, holy crap, I think you're onto something here, mate. And reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to come to the US for one gig? And then I did one gig and everything stemmed from that gig.
0: Wow. That's crazy. All right. I want to hear about that gig. Before we get there, what were you doing? Because leading up even to the TEDx talk, you had been doing some speaking and trying to build your career, build your brand, build your reputation and name there. Uh, What kind of events were you
1: speaking at? What were you speaking on? A lot of bad topics, a lot of crap topics that added no value to anybody. I remember my first talk for a building association. They came up to me. The CEO came up to me and said, mate, have you done this before? And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe three times. And... He was just really upset with my performance and felt like I added no value. So to to give you context, I spoke to a ton of schools. I spoke to a ton of associations and I did so many of these for free. Like it was crazy how many I did for free. And it it all came off the back of one of my mentors who told me, you know, a pianist is not going to play in front of an audience until he or she has had 10,000 hours of practice. Mm -hmm. You know, or you know the whole Malcolm Gladwell thing, and so you so said to me, Vin, how much time have you spent practicing with your instrument, your voice, and your body is an instrument as well? So then, instead of doing a, continually doing lots of free gigs, I actually doubled down on going to a singing teacher and and doing theater, and I actually did that for two years before I like actively pursued my speaking career. And, and seriously, Grant, that has been my greatest competitive advantage right now. Why is that? Well, because I feel that I now have an element of performance. When I speak, I don't go on stage just to speak. I go on stage and I perform. Yeah. And and, then to me, I feel that's my competitive edge, you know, in the speaking market. Do you
0: think that that came from the, that musical training or does that come from like the, uh, because the magician background also, I would assume there's a lot more of a performance element than what people would commonly think of in the speaking world.
1: Yeah, definitely. But but the thing is, what led me to doing singing training and also like vocal training in general and and theatre was magic. Because there's one great line in the world of magic where Robert Houdin or Houdin says that a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician, which gives us insight to if you want to be a great magician, you've got to be a great actor. And a great actor must have great, great vocal variety and also be able to control their instrument, which is their body. Let me just say one thing that like, blew my freaking mind, my teacher did, my my singing teacher did. She, I sat down, she played a song, and she turns around after three minutes of pl- her playing this one damn song, and she goes, how do you feel? And I go, well, a little bit awkward, but I feel sad. And then she played another song, and then she goes, how do you feel? And I go, inspired. And then she kept doing this, and she ran me through all these different emotions, and then she turns around after a good 20 minutes, and she goes, every song I played had no words, yet you knew exactly how to feel. Mm-hmm. I want you to understand, Vin, that there's, there's another language that we have to learn how to speak. And it's through music. And when you speak, you're speaking out a piece of music. And right now you only understand the music of one emotion. So she taught me like, and she would be playing music and she goes, I want you to speak to this song and harmonize with it. And it was so weird. It was so weird. I felt like I was wasting money and I was being an idiot, but i I'd paid her a lot of money too. But then it just, she helped me understand how to create different performances by being able to harmonize my voice. And I know this sounds crazy, but it genuinely, I feel like this gives me a really competitive advantage.
0: Did you recognize that as a possibility going into that and saying, okay, I'm going to take some of this vocal training, some of this singing training because I'm interested in singing or I recognize where I want to get to in the speaking business and this is going to become a competitive advantage for me?
1: Yeah, well, because I, I went into it intentionally. I did not do acting. I did not do theater or singing to become an actor or a singer. I did it with the primary purpose of just ensuring that when I go on stage that like, because I, I'm used to living in the world of magic where we create astonishment. And like, and please, I don't mean that in, in any arrogant way. It's just that in magic, like there's nothing worse than shit magic that just isn't, right? So so when we perform magic, we're used to people going, oh my God, that was so good. Right. And I always want the same kind of reaction in everything that I do. Steve Martin, be so good they can't ignore you, right? right. Like yeah. that is just, that is my freaking, bible in one sentence right right so so to me it was how can i become the best speaker i can be so that the speaking market cannot ignore me
0: you said that early on that so much of your, in terms of just building your business and getting going and, and beginning to build some momentum was just doing free gig after free gig after free gig. And, and that's that's definitely the story that we hear from a lot of different speakers. But at the same time, the, the challenge and the reality is, is at the same time, you're trying to eat and live indoors and provide a living for your family. So what was that like early on of finding that balance between I have to make a living somehow and at the same time, just speaking for free to get at bats, to get practice, to get reps in, To hone my craft, but also develop and build relationships in the market. How did you find that balance?
1: It was really difficult, but I will say that what did help is that, you know, at the time I did have an online business as well, teaching magic tricks. And, you know, I was getting my monthly check from YouTube, which, though not a lot, but still did help a couple of grand. And I also still was able to to sell subscriptions to my online business. So I did have that as an income. It made it a lot easier, but I, I can't imagine how difficult it would have been if I didn't have anything. So, and again, I only jumped into the world of speaking because I just realized that I didn't even know this was an industry grant. Right. I thought speakers get a bottle of wine.
0: Right, right. Right.
1: Yeah. I didn't know we get paid this much. Right. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It's
0: totally ridiculous. So even though you're doing free gig after free gig after free gig, and, and ultimately, I mean, it sounds like you're hoping that it turns into something. You're hoping that a door opens. Are there times though, where you're doing all those free gigs where you're feeling discouraged, you're wondering if it's worth it, you're second
1: guessing, you're doubting yourself. What Talk us yeah, through what that was like. For sure. But all that doubt and all that second guessing had context because who gets paid like to me, my first goal was I just wanted to be paid like 500 bucks an hour. Sure. You know, like, but then the ultimate goal is our new speakers were being paid 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 a talk. So I, I thought to myself, if I genuinely wanted to achieve something that bloody extraordinary, then the road there is going to be just as bloody extraordinarily difficult. So I always had that context, which stopped me from falling into that hopelessness mindset because it always made me realize that if, like, if you want to be paid that much and achieve something that great it's going to suck for a long time then. like The road there is going to suck freaking ass. Like It's going to be crap. So to me, it's just a matter of just having context and not losing that context and thinking that this journey is going to be easy. So I think being able to keep that at the forefront of my mind about how terrible this journey was going to be kept me resilient. It kept me really resilient.
0: How are you self-aware enough to realize that you could do this and i think this is a challenge for a lot of speakers is you know you do a couple of talks and you get some good feedback you get some good reaction some of them go well some of them don't go well but to recognize that you have the drive and ultimately the skill set to become a 20 30 40 50 thousand dollar speaker but you just recognize that it's going to take a lot of work and the reality is is most speakers won't get to that level so how do you balance the drive to get to that point but at the same time being self aware enough to realize
1: that you may or may not have what it takes Yeah, look, and I'd have to say that my awareness did not come from me, but my awareness came from me reading a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck, which is a fantastic book. And one of the things that she wrote in the book was that people often don't give themselves enough credit for how much they can actually achieve and how they can pick up a new skill and become really masterful at it. And I really, I just bought it. Like I just bought that kind of philosophy, whether it's right or wrong or works for lots of people or not many people. For me, when I read that, I really connected to it in that I realized that if I wanted to get good at something, why doubt myself? Like I go to the casino and I gamble on freaking odds that are stupid. I buy a lottery ticket that are on odds that are just stupid. So I'm willing to bet on stupid odds, but I'm not willing to bet on myself. So that that, that kind of mindset kicked in at the time. I just said, you know what, stuff it. I'm just going to believe I can. Because all this doubting back and forth is killing me. Like, and I did do it. I doubted back. I doubted about being doing this speaking thing for ages. Grant, like, I knew about this and wanted to do it since I was in my early twenties. But oh, I can't do it in my early twenties. I'm I'm in my early twenties. Yeah, no one's yeah. gonna want to listen to a kid in his early twenties. Right. So, so to me, and and it's not only in speaking. I doubted myself in so many areas of my life, and I just think I just got to a threshold where I was just pissed off. I was just like, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to doubt myself anymore, and I'm just gonna do it. But I'm gonna do it being fully aware that I need to be patient and build mastery. It's not about just believing that you can and then you can, no, no, no. Your beliefs dictate your actions. So those actions that are dictated should be dictated towards hard work and building mastery and and mastering your craft. So the book Mindset, the key thing that it taught me was that whatever it is you wanna do, you can. It just takes work. And I loved it because at that time in my life, there was so much confusion and that just simplified everything.
0: So at that point, you're doing all these free gigs. You're starting to feel like, okay, you might, have, you might have something here. There might be something there that you can build on. You mentioned that you did the TEDx talk and that that led to connecting with some bureaus. And I want to get to that story because it sounds like that's extremely pivotal. But what were you doing in those three years, even just to get those three gigs? It sounds like there's no bureau involved. It's just you uh, yeah, more bit, or less knocking on doors. How are you getting gigs in the beginning?
1: Well look I let this break it down a little bit because I got a lot of my own work during the beginning but then I I gradually did go with a bureau in Australia as well but in 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 the beginning when you're doing the free work and I think you can't avoid it if you want to build a really good speaking career because you can't you can't not have stage time stage time is where the real work is being done yeah. but if you do if you have stage time after stage time after stage time without the correction of experts that are able to help you become a better speaker. And in my case, it was with my my theater coach and also my singing teacher. They helped me refine every talk that I was doing. And, and I paid a lot of money for this. And, and I think this is the thing that, that really bothers me as well when I, when I see people jump into an industry and they're not being willing to invest in their own career. That could potentially return you thousands of dollars an hour. It's insanity. Mm -hmm. So to me, I actually invested a ton of money into them reviewing my talks. So during the period of free speeches, I just want to add there to clarify that I was improving every single time I was speaking because for example, my, my, my senior teacher would listen to it and she goes, look, I'm listening to you speak. And when you're sharing this story, Vin, I don't hear emotion. There's no emotion and there's no bloody pauses, mate. The tempo is off. And it was so fascinating because sitting through that with her and my theater coach as well, talking to me about structure of my talks and structure of my content, every free talk I did was me evolving my talk dramatically. So in, in total, I probably did about 30 free talks. But after 30 free talks, I now had about a three or $4,000 keynote. Right. And that's when the bureaus picked me up because I worked on the keynotes until it got good. And then I went to the bureaus instead of going to the bureaus with a talk that is like my crap talk. Right, right. I went to them with something that was, you know, it was fairly polished, still kind of crappy, but pretty damn polished. Right.
0: And and you made a great point there that there's nothing that competes with true stage time. And and the reality is, is anytime a speaker's working on a talk, a joke, a story, a punchline, whatever, it's really just kind of an, it's an educated guess until you get in front of an audience and you see, okay, this worked, that didn't work, this resonated, this, that clicked, that didn't click. And how do I transition from this story into this next point or bit or whatever it may be? And you just don't know
1: that until you get in front of a live audience. And you know what's worse, Grant? You work for one audience and then the next one you do, you're like, wait, it didn't work again. What the hell? <laughs> right? What's so the true. frick? So and true. then you do it again and it works. So again, having a larger sample size is what helps you make sense of those anomaly situations. Like, you know, there's little anomalies that occur. So so to me, it's you got you to gotta put in time. And on top of that time, like Grant, I set up a stage in my backyard, bought my own PA system and was delivering talks in my backyard to the point where it pissed off my wife. Like people don't understand how badly I wanted this. I I think that's something else to consider is I wanted this really bad grant. I mean, there's no better career in the world. There's just none.
0: How much of that do you feel like has played into your success today? That, because I mean, there's plenty of people who they just really want it. Yeah. Um, but they're not willing to put in the work. Or maybe they're like, yeah, I mean, speaking's fun and I did it a couple of times, but I just want to connect with a bureau. I want to connect with an agent or I just want to get some gigs that fall into my lap and then it'll all just magically work out. And it sounds like in your situation, like there's so much that went into behind the scenes of putting in the work to build the craft, to build the business, to yep. build the momentum to what it is today that the, frankly, a lot of people just aren't that
1: passionate or aren't that willing to put in that level of work for that
0: level of success
1: yeah it's two things. I think definitely I wanted it really bad. and I know there are genuinely out there people who want it really bad too. So it's two things. It's wanting it really bad, but and also being super strategic about how you want to approach this. true. so so like something that I did that I think might be helpful for those who are listening to this and want to start a speaking career is that when I first started speaking, like I wanting to get into this career, I literally went on Amazon and purchased 50 books. well, 30, let's be realistic. I, I literally ordered 30 odd books. And I read every single one about speaking. I wanted to understand the, I I blueprinted the industry. Mm -hmm. So I mapped it all out and I went, oh, okay. Now I'm playing this game instead of with my own Neanderthal experience. I'm looking at 30 other people who have written about it, talked about it. Even, you know, I even looked at Les Brown's books to understand his life. And he's a great speaker. Mm -hmm. And, And I looked at all that and I went, so now I get the rules in the game. Yeah. But now at least all of this design, all of this hard work is not thrown into random emotional decisions. It's, I'm playing the game now and I'm playing it fairly well from the get-go because I understand the rules and I've read about it. I think that's that's where a lot of speakers go wrong. They just they're, I just want to be a speaker. And right, then, right. well, let's do it. Let's, so how do we do it? Bureaus. Yeah, I'll get listed on the site. Right, right. There's so much more to it.
0: So at this point you have spent literally years of learning the craft, of perfecting the craft, of continuing to speak for free, to continue to like hone, read books and work with coaches and all the stuff that leads up to this this TEDx moment. So tell us about the TEDx talk and how that how pivotal that was for you.
1: So so the TEDx talk is something I probably spent about a year on. I know that's pretty ridiculous, but I knew that the only thing that the bureaus in the US would look at is if I had a TEDx talk of some sort. And so so that I seriously spent about a year on that, crafting it, writing it, uh, working on the lines. I hired comedians to help me write funny lines to funny up my talk. I don't try to do it myself because it's just too damn hard. So, and then I worked on delivery. So I delivered that TED Talk that everyone saw or people see online, my creating the most influential you talk. I delivered that talk maybe about 20 times to a live audience before I delivered it to a TEDx live audience. So... It's been delivered many times. So all the lines and everything was was very, very rehearsed. And I knew that I needed a really good video of me speaking, like presenting my ability as a communicator, as a speaker, but also showing the content that I had. I knew I had to have something like that if I wanted to get the attention from the bureaus. And that finally did it, mate. Like that's what got me the attention from all the bureaus in Australia. They all went, Wow, this is amazing, mate. We we can't wait to book you. And I seriously went from talking for free to a couple of thousand. And I very quickly moved from a couple of thousand to four thousand to six thousand to seven to eight to nine to ten to twelve. And I capped out in Australia at twelve thousand. But it was crazy because then the traction like you know, you even fall victim to their own damn illusion. You go, Oh wow, everything's happening so fast now. But it wasn't. It was bloody years of that hard work and you even create that illusion for yourself at times. So
0: one of the things that you you mentioned there was you were hoping, and it sounds like a very strategic decision, that by doing the TEDx stage that you would get the attention of some potential bureaus, potentially in the U.S. or other parts of the world where you wanted to speak. What made you think that getting on a TEDx stage would open those types of doors for you? Because, I mean, the reality is, is like, again, to be devil's advocate, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of TEDx talks on an annual basis. And so it becomes very, very difficult to get yours to rise to the top. So what made you feel like that that was a strategic move that would open doors for you?
1: So I I literally took that TEDx video and put it onto my YouTube channel. And I've got a magic YouTube channel, which has about 850,000 subscribers to to boost the number of views on that up. (laughs) So that when I did send it to the bureaus, again, being strategic, that they'll be like, oh, this view's got like about 100,000 views. Pretty cool. Let's check it out. So, it's not a TEDx YouTube video that has, you know, 20 views, because you're right. No one's going to watch that because the views of your video, they validate you. So, to me, that's what I did. And I even, you know, tried my best to put myself in the best position in that sense. So, that's how I kind of strategically did it.
0: So from there, you do the TEDx talk, you've got the video, you've got some views that you've seeded it with. And then how are you getting in front of a bureau? And I think this is, I'm also curious, like why you were so set on getting it in front of a bureau? Because I think this is the the reality for a lot of speakers is, is like we've kind of alluded to is that they just think, well, if I just get in with a bureau, then I'm set. And the reality is, is like, there are speakers who certainly work with bureaus, but there's also a lot of speakers, the majority of them who never get in with a bureau. So what made you feel like that was the ticket for you to break into speaking even further?
1: Well, because just my, my general understanding of how bureaus work, they have a client list. And if I become an incredibly great product for them, they'd want to expose me to their list of clients. So to me, every bureau has a list of clients that love them and trust them. Mm-hmm. So if I can become the best speaker, if I can become... Well, not the best, just the best I can be, but also at the same time, I can become a great product that they want to sell, then that's great. But, but if I join them and I'm say, for example, average, and I'm not, I'm not pushing myself to the edge of my capabilities, then, then I'm just being added to a list of 6,000 other speakers. But if I can make myself stand out enough, again, being strategic, and it's why I had to have that magician side of me, because I needed something different. Otherwise, I, I felt like I was just jumping into an ocean of just many other people who look too similar to me. Right. It's why I literally, before I came to the US, I even dyed my hair white blonde, because I fully understand now the importance of standing out. I get it now. And I knew they had a list of clients. And, and this is the other thing that you've got to think about as well. Being on a bureau's website does nothing. Like it does something, but it doesn't do a lot. What you have to do is you have to give the bureaus the right tools so that they are able to sell you. And Grant, I think you know, being in the group together that we're in with, with the other speakers, that, that, mate, I go all in on video. Yeah. Like my promo that I sent the bureaus in the US after they are willing to have a conversation with me, I spent 80 grand easily on the video. Yeah. And people go, that's ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, but this is also a ridiculous career path, right. <laughs> which requires ridiculousness. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I give the bureaus a new video promo every single year. So you do that TEDx talk. You send it to a bunch of
0: bureaus. You're not hearing anything. You finally have one that throws you a bone and invites you to do a gig in the US. How did that one gig change everything for you?
1: I had the gig in Los Angeles in 2015. I flew an entire video production crew of four to Los Angeles with me from Australia, and this is why it cost so much money. And I filmed that entire event, and like again, and again, mate, I worked my freaking ass off for that event. I remember training, and I, I hired a bloody theatre in Australia for two weeks straight to rehearse for this. Mm-hmm. And I came, that I did it. It went bloody great. Agents were standing in the back of the room. Two thousand people. Standing ovation right at the end. The keynote went freaking amazing, but it wasn't without bleeding for. And right at the end, the agents were like, Holy, f- this is freaking amazing. Yeah. And then I had it filmed, I had their reactions, I had everything. And then from there now, mate, they were all willing to meet me now. Right. But even then, one one thing bureaus will say to you after you meet them, great, send me your stuff. And if you don't have great stuff now, meaning video content, marketing material to send them, you'll suffer for it. Because that whole opportunity, all that hard work to get up to that point has been wasted.
0: You know, it sounds like that the thing that has really differentiated you is, I mean, sure, you've got the hair and sure you've got the the magic side of it. And, and I want to actually talk about the magic side of it. But the thing that has really differentiated you as a speaker and your ultimately your best marketing asset has been that you show up and you crush it. And I think that's so true for any type of product. I mean, think about the, the restaurants that we enjoy, the experiences that we recommend, the the places that we go to, the concerts that we're like, you, you tell anybody and everybody with an earshot of this thing was so amazing. And ultimately, that becomes your marketing. And so it sounds like for you, that's been very strategic that spending so many hundreds, thousands of hours practicing, preparing behind the scenes for your yeah. presentations that you are so good on stage. And you just know that if you show up and kill it, like you mentioned before, the Steve Martin quote, that be so good that they can't ignore you, that ultimately that's what's been such a huge driver for your business over the years.
1: Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, every month I still send one video to my theater coach in Australia and I still send one video to my magician coach from the UK and they still crush me. They still crush me. like to them, like you know, uh, the an average audience member who doesn't know much about speaking might go, Wow, Vin, you're amazing, but my teachers still say I'm I'm they go, Yeah, Vin, you're all right, mate. You're, you're doing okay. But you <laughs> Keep you, a humble. Lot of areas you can re- Well, it's not just keeping me humble, but they, they genuinely point out real things that I can improve on. And I love that. I love that. Because you're right. The video and the marketing material is the spear, the tip of the spear that gets you in. And then it is your actual ability that is what's going to help you build a multi-million dollar speaking business.
0: Right, right.
1: Because if you've got a great video, you're right. And you get the event and then you go and you don't crush it, then you won't crush your speaking career. Right. It all comes back down to your mastery of your craft.
0: How do you not get complacent and comfortable though? Because you're extremely good at what you do. And it'd be very easy to argue that you are good enough. So how do you, as someone who's going, yeah, but... There's still just a little bit more that I can improve on because I think that's a place for it's really easy for speakers to get to that point. This story has always yeah. worked. This trick has always worked. This punchline <laughs> a, a kills every time. And it's just really easy just to settle into that and just know that, you know what? I'm bored and I'm on autopilot, but I'm still killing it. So how do you make sure that you don't get to that point?
1: Just spend some time with speakers who are better than you. <laughs> <laughs> Like a good friend that I've been able to make acquaintance with is Mel Robbins, and mm-hmm. and I freaking love her. And when I see what she does, and I, when I see how she she, like what, one of my my mentors, my theater coach, he always says this line where he says, "Then the audience is an instrument, and you must learn how to play that instrument." And like he he's taught me with that mindset, and like you know, he tells me how to play the audience instrument, and and I have never seen someone play the instrument so well when until I met Mill Robbins, and I was like, oh damn it. She's <laughs> so damn it. And that's what keeps me eager to continue. You're right because if you're the best already in the group of people you spend time with then then maybe there is no need. And and genuinely maybe you will reach a point one day where you don't have to because you don't need to maybe you don't want to. Right. But right now when I'm spending time with the key speakers that I get to spend time with yeah. I, I go home and I'm like, okay, I need out my game. I need to, I'm, you know, it's, it's a healthy competition. It's a yeah, healthy competition.
0: Very much so. I want to come back and talk about the magician element. You mentioned that initially you were kind of positioned as a magician and we're just having a very difficult time getting people to take you seriously, to get traction. I know personally, we've worked with a lot of speakers who are either, you know, magician or juggler or hypnotist or comedian yeah. or some entertainment act. And we mm-hmm. just talk about the difference between positioning yourself as a magician who happens to speak versus a speaker who happens to do magic. So can you talk about the the difference between, and it seems like a subtle difference, you know, and it doesn't seem oh, like that huge. big a deal, but in reality, it makes a huge, huge difference in perception and how people would per, would perceive you in the marketplace. So I'm curious how, what your journey has been with that and how being a magician, yes, it's a differentiating factor, but how you've used that at, at, while balancing, not hurting you or affecting negatively.
1: I think that's what people from the outside don't see is that being a magician actually hurt me a ton during the beginning when I wanted to get into the water speaking. But now now that I've been able to do magic and speaking, a lot of people do look at that and go, oh wow, it's your strong point of difference. But to have that strong point of difference meant that I had to suffer a lot in the beginning and losing out on a lot of gigs because this is a keynote. We're not hiring you for the after dinner spot. We're hiring you to open our conference and we're not sure if magic is right. And because people didn't see a lot of this yet in the marketplace, they were very resistant to it. It's like, it's like the whole line that I think, I think it was Seth Godin that said this. He said that if you want to create something that people are going to stand in line for, you have to be willing to create something that nobody's going to stand in line for. And... I was trying to create something that no one was going to be standing in line for because no one wanted a magician to be a keynote speaker because they just think of a magician as, oh, this is something my children would love. Oh, I wish my daughter or my son was here. They would have loved this. And that stigma crushed like that crushed me in the beginning. Yeah. So I actually had to completely separate my branding. Like, again, it's so, it, like you said, it's such a key difference, but I'm, I'm a speaker who does magic, not a magician who speaks. Right. So, and because of this, one of my, my business mentors, Matthew Mihilevich, I remember he looked at me and he said, if you really want to do this right, Vin, you're going to have to choose one or the other. You can't do both. And that was a very real moment for me. And again, this is not to say this is advice for everybody to take. This was just what was right for me. I chose speaking. I actually let go. I had to let go of magic for my own journey. So I stopped doing theater shows. I mean, I did theater shows in Australia that were winning awards every year. But I gave that up because I wanted this more. And it just goes to show you can't have it all. Because while I was doing all these magic shows, I was confusing the market. I was confusing the marketplace, which made it more difficult for the marketplace to go, yeah, but are you a magician? I've seen you in the paper, seen you on TV, you're a magician. Like, so I literally had to change how the market was perceiving me by being more clear, by having a bit more single-mindedness. So
0: whenever a potential client is talking you, to you today, how does that conversation go so you make sure you are positioned in their mind correctly? Mm-hmm. Meaning, are you saying, yes, I do magic? Or is it, no, no, I'm, I'm there first and foremost to speak? Or like, how do you communicate that to them clearly so that they don't feel like, yeah, but we don't really want a magician? Or yeah, you, you, know, you wouldn't be great as an opening keynote, but we would love for you to be a part of our you know, after dinner social hour. You know? So how do you make sure you're positioned right in their mind?
1: My marketing material, my video. When they watch my video, it tells them everything they need to know. Yeah. So my, my calls are no, not really about me justifying it. And I'm sure I lose out on gigs still for clients who are confused by my marketing material. But my marketing material that I put out now, like my speaker promo is very clear. That they, they get it. They go, oh, he uses magic as his metaphor. And, and that's the thing. That's why I say it's so important. Because without great video, there are way more clients out there that are saying no to you. You just don't hear them say no to you. Very true. So, so to me, by having that video out there, my calls, like if it's a referral, then generally it's a very strong referral. I get it. Like my briefing call this morning was five minutes. They just go in, saw you at this place. You know what you're doing, mate. Thanks. I was like, that's best briefing call in the world. Yeah. And then when there are clients that I win the deal calls, it like my video promo didn't do a good enough job and I don't know how to optimize it anymore because I've already optimized the crap out of it. So like they just want me to further clarify that it's not a magic show. I have a lot of lines now that I say, like one key line that I say that I go, look, I believe education has to be fun for adults. We still, we still have to make the medicine taste good for adults. Yeah. Yeah. And I do three things on stage. And this is what really helps clarify. It. I go, look, I'm definitely going to educate, but I also inspire and I entertain. And when you do these three things together, totally stole that from Steve Jobs, by the way, but when you do these three things together, that's what creates an experience that will stick with the audience. If I go up there and I just educate and I can, it's boring.
0: Yeah. So adding the magic, adding the inspiration, adding the comedy is definitely a differentiating factor. But at the same time, like you said, it adds to your ability to deliver a message and to connect with an audience. And like, you know, we've touched on that is, I mean, that's been a huge marketing asset for you is just being able to deliver an amazing talk.
1: Yeah. And then it all stemmed from, I still remember one conversation with one of my magician mentors. And he turned to me and he said, Vin, if you could actually perform real magic, you would never have to market one day in your life. Hmm. You can't remain a secret. I'm sorry, buddy. Yeah. And then that's why then he added the line. That's why it just gets so good that the whole marketplace can't ignore you. Stop trying to find all these hacks. Stop trying to find all these shortcuts because you will be found out. Yeah. Very good.
0: Well, Vin, you have shared some uh, great insight and wisdom. We appreciate you taking the time to share some of your story and journey with us. If if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, you've alluded to your demo video. I've watched the demo video. I've I've recommended it to friends because it is a phenomenal, phenomenal video. Now, I think, Vin, you would echo this. If you don't have $80,000 to spend on your first demo video, I'm guessing, Vin, you didn't have that for your first demo video. This is probably multiple iterations in. Work with what you've got, improve it as you go, but do it with excellence. And Vin has a great video that you can look at as an example. So, Vin, where can we go to uh, to to find out more about you
1: yeah just jump onto the best place is probably my facebook page so just go to facebook forward slash ask vin v-i-n-h and uh, you can check out what i do there i i'm, I'm pretty active on there
0: awesome then thanks for the time man we appreciate you
1: thanks grant pleasure
0: All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vin Zhang. Just some great insights, right? Again, I think oftentimes we just assume that the best speakers in the world, the best entrepreneurs, the people we admire and respect, that they just magically arrive there. And that is just not the case. Vin is a great example of someone who's put in the work, who's been very disciplined with the craft of speaking, with the business of speaking, and he's seeing significant results because of that. So I hope you learned from that. I hope you uh, were inspired by that. If you were, would you do me a favor? We would love it if you would just not only subscribe to the podcast, if you're not already, you're missing out, but subscribe to the podcast and then leave us a rating and review. You can do that within iTunes or wherever you choose to listen to podcasts, but uh, especially just leaving a rating and review, letting us know what you think, letting other people know about it. That really helps us out. We really do appreciate it. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.